0: Good evening, thank you all for being here. Thank you all for coming as we celebrate Bach. It's wonderful, here it is, you know, over 300 years after Bach was born and he has a following, he has a real following. Uh, At the end of his life, nobody would have dreamed that Bach would ever be heard of again. And I'll tell that story, but uh, you know, There's a book by Malcolm Gladwell called The Tipping Point. And he talks about sometimes there's a combination of the right talent at the right time. You'll have to draw your own conclusions as to whether Bach was at the right time or there might have been a time and a place that would have been better for him. Bach was born in a little town right in the middle of Germany called Eisenach. Eisenach is in Thuringia. So there's another famous person even further back than Bach associated with Eisenach, and that is Martin Luther. In the heat of the Reformation, after Martin Luther attended the little Latin school that Bach went to 170 years later, Martin Luther was locked in the Wartburg in Eisenach, and uh, he was essentially jailed, but he was being protected as well because there was a ban on him, and a ban meant that there was no legal consequence to killing him so basically uh there was a price on his head he was the solomon Rushdie of 1521 (laughs) and um there martin luther decided since he was stuck in a room that he would translate the bible the new testament from greek into german now this had huge repercussions as we all know because the entire protestant movement was based on the congregation understanding what was being said. And the relationship to scripture changed completely once the congregation had the Bible in their own native language. Incidentally, when Martin Luther did this, he took 18 dialects of German and created one German, pretty much the way Dante did with all the dialects of Italian. And this one German is quite close to the German still spoken today. So Martin Luther did two unifying things when he translated the New Testament. So the next time you're in prison for a few months, remember, (laughs) there's something useful you can do. The whole nature of worship became stripped down. Martin Luther didn't like all the rites of Catholicism, but he did know that people love to sing. So he took drinking tunes and love songs, and tunes that everybody knew, and he set them to sacred texts. So everybody knew the song, Which was a song about getting beer down on the corner, and it became uh, in German "Wacht auf, uns ruft die Stimme," a song about waiting for Christ to come, and we have to be listening and hear His voice, and we have to answer the call. So, by taking all these tunes people knew and making very simple melodies, every Sunday people could sing together in church, and this was a very unifying factor. Okay. Now, the Bach family went back way before Johann Sebastian Bach, and many of them were professional musicians. Seven generations of Bach from Feitbach, who came in the 1500s from Hungary, up through Johann's, Johann Sebastian's sons were professional musicians. So over 70 of these Bachs, were working professionally as musicians, and over 50 of them were named Johann. <laughs> so it was a little confusing. They distinguished themselves by their middle names. There was Johann Ambrosius Bach, Bach's father, and Johann Christian Bach, Bach's uncle, and all these Bachs, Johann something Bach, and the something was the special name. Bach was the eighth child of Ambrosius, and uh, you know, infant mortality, he was the the eighth child, but only four of these children survived to adulthood. Bach was nine years old when his mother died, and a few months later, his father died. So at ten, he was an orphan. He went to his brother's house. His brother, you can guess, was named Johann. And uh, Johann Christoph Bach was in Ordruf. Uh, Off he went, and also his slightly older brother, Jakob, went with him. So 10-year-old Bach and 13-year-old brother Jakob went to live with their 24-year-old brother, who was, of course, a professional musician. So uh, both Bachs were studying music, and uh, pretty soon Jakob was called away to fight in Sweden. So young Bach, at 12 or 13, wrote uh, one of his first pieces we know about, Capriccio on the departure of his beloved brother. And in the midst of this, somewhat simple piece, we hear horn calls and sounds that evoke the military. He's saying, you know, he's, he's aware that Jakob is going to fight, and Jakob did come back, that was good news. So Johann grows up, and uh, at 15, he is able to go to a school in um, Lüneburg. Lüneburg is more than 200 miles north of where he's living, and so he and his friend Georg Erdmann walked up to this school, spent three years there in the choir until his voice changed, but also played the organ and um, played the violin. Now, I learned something interesting. I always try to get interesting facts for you. In the 1700s, at least in Germany, where there were records, the average age for boy's voices to change was 16 or 17 years old. This is put down to that they didn't have as good of a diet and it took longer for them to grow and develop, but I wondered when I first read this, why was Bach going as a boy chorister to a school at 15? Surely he was a changed voice already, but no. So a lot of voices changed 16, 17. Anyway, he was there for a while, his voice did drop, but all of the other musical advantages of this school were wide open to him. And apparently he became quite an accomplished organist even before he left that school at 18. When he did leave, it was because Arnstadt had just imposed a tax on beer and with all of the new money, they bought an organ for their church. And they wanted this new organ to be tested out by someone deemed a competent organist. So young Johann Sebastian Bach, the great organ improviser by now, tests out the organ and the people in the church were so impressed that they offered him the position of being the organ master and choir master in Arnstadt. So he stayed there for a while there were several factors that um, caused them to send him away, ultimately. One was that he had a novel way of having the hymns sung, and this was based on his organ improvisations. Uh, If the hymn you liked used to go like this. Bach would now do something like this. So he would put all these little improvisations in between, and the congregation didn't know when to sing. You know, for 170 years, they'd been singing these hymns one way, and suddenly Bach felt that they needed to be adorned musically. Well, you can imagine that this conflict was, was uh, fair on both sides because they had inadvertently hired someone with an extraordinary musical imagination, but at the same time the purpose of the congregational singing was for everybody to sing these hymns together. So finally they sort of figured it out, but then he wanted to introduce choral harmonizations. Uh, the chorus wasn't used to this. So um, what used to be, would become something like this. And the choir was completely puzzled. What was this long, extended way of singing a tune that wasn't even the tune of the hymn, darn it, you know? So uh, the authorities tried to rein Bach in. But he really uh, demonstrated throughout his life that he didn't see things any way but the way that his muse guided him. Now, I thought that um, so that you could appreciate that it's challenging to sing chorales in the way Bach wrote them, we're going to learn two bars of Bach's favorite chorale, okay? And we're all going to sing it. But um, first, we'll do it the way Martin Luther would have done it, which is you're all just going to learn the melody, the words, we'll all do it together, and that's done. But then we'll find out how much more difficult it is to do it the way Bach wanted it done. Bach's favorite chorale was called Jesu meine Freude, Jesus my joy. And it goes like this. Jesus meine Freude. We can all do that, right? Here we go. Jesus meine Freude. Now, you can imagine why hundreds of years of Germans were happy doing that. It it was not challenging, the texts were inspiring, and we all did it together. However, enter Johann Sebastian Bach. Much more interesting. Jesus, meine Freude. Did you follow that? Okay, the good news is if you'd like to sing soprano, nothing changes. Uh, on the top, nothing changes. Now, if you think that you're a lower female voice and you'd like to sing the alto part, it goes like this. Jesus, Everybody do it for now, okay? All right, one more time, please. Jesus, Well, that's very respectable. That's good. Now, basses, you're going to sing this. Jesus, Here we go. Jesus, meine Freude. One more time, okay, everybody. Here we go. I saved the tenor part for last, because Bach, in his day, knew that the best singers were the tenors, the complete opposite of now. Because statistically, if you take a thousand singers, uh, 800 of them are women, of whom 500 are sopranos, 300 are altos, and then of the remaining 200 singers, 150 of them are basses and baritones, and there's maybe 50 guys who will sing tenor. So, uh, in uh, Beethoven's time and up through Schubert and up through the 19th century, most singers were men and most of them were tenors. Maybe it has to do with that late puberty thing, I don't know, (laughs) but in any case, the tenor parts are the most difficult. And this one goes, Jesus meiner, Right? You shouldn't write tritones in harmony. Bach knew all those rules, but he also knew when to break them. And here he is breaking this rule. Okay, I know it's hard, but let's just wail away and do it. Here we go. One more time, at least. Jesus, meine Freude. Does everybody remember at least one part that they can sing? <laughs> all right, let's put it all together. Pick, pick your voice, and here we are in in church in Arnstadt in uh, 17 1705 or something like that. Here we go. Ready, and... there we are, beautiful, beautiful. (laughs) So I'm just saying that so that you'll have some appreciation of what Bach was demanding of the choir in the church. Then there was the orchestra. Well, the orchestra had played, guess what? The hymn tune along with the singers. So suddenly Bach is writing extravagant uh, counter melodies that the orchestra has to play. And um, Needless to say, this also ends badly. Uh, Bach uh, had mostly strings, a few horns, maybe a stray bassoon, and a couple of oboes. And it was at the stray bassoon that he directed the unforgivable insult of saying he was a fagotist, a, a weenie bassoonist. Um, the weenie bassoonist and his friends waited for Bach in the public square with sticks. And they went to beat him that day, and Bach, I don't know why, was carrying a rapier, which he drew. And uh, the authorities sided with the weenie bassoonist. So Bach was on very thin ice when he was found in the choir loft with a young woman, and uh, he was told he was no longer welcome at Arnstadt. The young woman was his second cousin, Maria Barbara, who quickly became Mrs. Bach. And Bach and Maria Barbara moved to Weimar, Um, And he had a short but productive association, went away to Mühlhausen, and then was offered a better job at Weimar, and he moved back to Weimar. That was successful. Um, And then an an even better opportunity came up. Well, I should say, in Weimar, there was a problem, ultimately. Uh, (coughs) Wilhelm Ernst was the duke in Weimar, and uh, Wilhelm Ernst also was not fond of Bach's way of taking our good old hymns and constantly tinkering with them. Uh, We all know that the hymn should go like this. Jesus, what do we say in English? Jesu joy of man's desiring, right? Uh, Jesu bleibet meine Freude. Jesu bleibet meine Freude. Well, Bach didn't like that harmonization. Listen, now listen to this one. So he has, uh, what does he have? Going into minor and then what chord is that please? So Bach already creates harmonies which we consider completely contemporary and modern and then resolves them to harmonies which are traditional harmonies. But his love of doing this became greater and greater. And so in his organ pieces, as well as the cantatas that he wrote for the churches, as well as the instrumental pieces he wrote for keyboard, more and more we see this love of stretching harmonic language to the full possibility, the full extreme. All right, it wasn't enough for him to reharmonize harmonize Jesus bleibet meine Freude. He decided there should be some beautiful music before and in between, and you've heard it, I'm sure. <laughs> everybody comes in. But of course they don't know when they're supposed to come in. They've just been listening to this beautiful tune. So they have to institute rehearsals, something which had never happened in a church before. Bach would start writing the cantata on Monday. He'd have the parts finished by Thursday. They'd run through it Friday night. They'd have a dress rehearsal Saturday and they'd perform it with their fingers crossed on Sunday morning at 8 a.m. every week. Of course, there was no photocopying there was not even any music paper. There was just blank paper and ink and a straight edge. So every page of music paper had to be created with all the staffs on it before you could even start writing music on it. And uh, this was obviously time consuming. Um, Bach did find that there were some people who would help him once he'd written out the piece in creating the parts for the, For the choir and for the orchestra. Some of you have probably heard this story that Mozart, somewhere in the middle of his life, has the opportunity to look at Bach's music, some of Bach's music that he didn't know, and that Mozart is completely flabbergasted by the greatness of this music. And I'd always assumed he had just looked at a score of a motet or one of these pieces. Well, they didn't make scores, they wrote out the separate voice part for everybody. So Mozart had put all of these in front of him and was reading them all at the same time, figuring out what that piece was. So all of the pieces that we know have been transcribed in modern notation that we can read for our convenience, because we're just not as literate as these people were. The professional musicians were reading every voice in a different clef. There was a soprano clef for the sopranos, which is not the same as the treble clef, and then there was the alto clef, which you might know as the viola clef, or the tenor clef, these are just different places, different lines that you attribute to be C. So all of these things are happening at once, and um, it was suddenly a very complicated world. The high Baroque, indeed, right? Uh, Baroque music started out uh, in a simpler way, and Bach took it to such extremes that it's hardly any wonder that his children left the Baroque era behind them and moved to create classical music because it was all that that people could understand. So Bach now has his Jesu bleibet meine Freude. You're welcome to sing it with me here. You don't have to do the harmony, you can just do the tune. You're wondering when to come in, aren't you? Well, that's pretty darn good. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm just trying to illustrate how Bach took the simple chorales, and had you been singing in four-part harmony and had we had a 16 or 18-piece orchestra up here, that would be pretty much what they were doing every Sunday with a fresh cantata. Now, Bach was offered a position in Kürten in 1720, no, no, 1717, and he took this. Prince Leopold was a Calvinist, and so the position in Kürten would have very little liturgical music because the Calvinists just stuck with the scripture and very simple music occasionally. So this was the period during which Bach decided to focus on instrumental music. And this is when he wrote the six cello suites and the six violin sonatas and partitas and the six English suites and the six French suites and the six partitas. You're noticing a pattern here. Bach felt that six was a number of normal human labor, because on the seventh day, God rested, and seven is a divine number, and six is not. So he didn't want to impinge on God's territory at all by (laughs) presuming that he could write seven of any of these. So he just wrote six. However, I would say it's true that in all of Bach's music, even the completely secular music, there is a sense of devotion. And I think that having lost his parents when he was 10 years old, it was his faith and his devotion that carried him through. So um, you could say that there are a lot of composers that had some kind of religious affinities and some that had none, but if you had to say what composers throughout history that we know about, say in the last 400 years, were the most devoutly religious, Probably Messiaen, who was an organist and and a Catholic mystic all of his life, and J.S. Bach are the two who topped that list. So uh, whether he's writing sacred or secular music, he said the only purpose of harmony is to the glory of God. And at the end of every composition he wrote, sacred or secular, he would write the letters SDG, Solo Dei Gloria, only to God the glory. So he worked in this marvelous atmosphere in Curtin. Oh, also the six Brandenburg concertos came <laughs> at this time. Um, and, and you know, many of these are, are familiar to you. I'll, I'll give you a little sampling um, in a minute. The ability now that he has developed as a mature composer to stretch harmony um, has reached a height that in no Western music has been seen up to this point. We know that Palestrina and Monteverdi and others wrote complex motets, but they did not test the limits of tonality and indeed go beyond the limits of tonality the way Bach did. I have to say a technical thing about music at this point. Tuning was by no means uniform throughout Europe. And the only way we know how things were tuned is the way organs are tuned, because over time, organs don't actually change tune. And there's still organs around from 500 years ago, 400, 300, 200 years ago. So we can tell uh, how things were tuned. Now, in Pythagoras' mind, an octave was two notes that had the relationship of frequency where the upper note is double the lower note. And indeed, if you, had a oscilloscope or something that could measure it, you'd find that you know, this A is 440 cycles per second, more or less, and this A is 880 cycles per second. But the fifth, which is key, was the first interval people discovered. You know, all those monks were chanting for hundreds of years in unison. And if you've heard people sing happy birthday in a restaurant, you know that nobody can really sing in unison. So somehow, accidentally, they discovered that this sounded kind of cool. And for a few hundred years, they just sang in fifths. Uh, gradually, that developed into more. But that fifth is central to Western harmony, and the fifth is the three to two. Uh, so, if this is um, 440 cycles, this is 660 cycles. Now, the only problem with that is if you tune, say, C major, which has no sharps or flats, perfectly then C major is great, but the further afield you get from C major, the weirder and more terrible the other keys sound. So for hundreds of years, people were content to be in C major or G major or F major with one sharp or one flat, but nobody ventured out into four, five, six sharps or flats until Bach. (laughs) And Bach favored a new kind of tuning, and he said, why not divide? No, he didn't. Okay, Bach didn't invent this kind of tuning. I'm taking a little liberty here, but uh, because of Bach, this new kind of tuning took hold in the Western European musical world, and it is this. Instead of every fifth being three to two, let's just divide the octave into 12 equal pieces. None of them will be perfect, but it means every key will be playable and very close to sounding right. Now, the advantage of this is that suddenly all of these inaccessible keys are available to us, And if, like Bach, you want to wander off into remote harmonic regions every time you write a piece which started off as a simple Lutheran chorale, you can do that. So, in his very first uh, book of keyboard pieces, the well-tempered clavier, and well-tempered here means tuned so that all 12 half-steps within an octave are the same he explores a prelude and a fugue in every major and minor key, starting with C major. Prelude, you know these. But what's going on already? This is five-part harmony, right? And we're gonna go away from C. And we're in D. That's that Jesu joy of man's desiring chord. Well, that's almost a happy ending, but he's not satisfied. This is called a diminished seventh. Here comes the Jesu chord again. exploring every possible chord that's related to this key. And what about this? Huh? Okay, sounds like happy ending is all around the corner, but uh, no. This insistent G on the bottom is called the pedal point. If your foot fell asleep on an organ pedal, that's what would happen. So he's taken us through all these keys, and he says, but that's not counterpoint, that's just five-part chorale writing, right? Now what about counterpoint? Here's a fugue in C. Do you know what a fugue is? Fugue means to chase. It's like a pursuit. And one voice enters with a theme. The next voice comes in a fifth higher, and then the third or fourth or even fifth voice, if it's a fugue with that many voices, follows, and it might be in the home key or in the key of fifth higher. But what Bach is able to do is weave these voices together so that harmonically everything makes sense. But he's not content just to make sense. He wants to make sense and stretch us as far as he can. Here comes the second. The third. So now we've got four voices going on, and this continues as Bach takes us through various keys, all because even temperament allows him to do this. Now, he didn't say uh, 48 preludes or 24 preludes and fugues, um, you know, that this is a a composition. He said this is um, for study, especially for young people, so that they might learn the major keys and he writes on his front page, the major keys, Do, Re, Mi, as well as the minor keys, uh, Re, Mi, Fa. So he's showing the difference between... and Because people weren't thinking this way, okay? He, he was making this available to a broader range of people. He never dreamed that Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Schumann, Wagner, Schoenberg, all these generations of composers after him would... Use this well tempered clavier as the basis for their own composition. That uh, was something he, he could never have imagined because he was just doing this. Uh, and, you know, although C major was common enough, nobody even knew how to read C sharp major. There was this key with five, seven, seven sharps in front of them. So when he said, This is for young people to learn. It's true, a whole generation of people who had never seen that many sharps or flats in front of them was figuring out not only what it meant theoretically, but also how to negotiate it uh, pianistically. The remarkable thing is that all of these preludes and fugues have different moods. Uh, Bach is more than a theorist. He is able, uh, within the framework of this extremely complex contrapuntal language, to create a emotion of every sort. I'm gonna play you a whole prelude and fugue. This is a prelude and fugue from uh, the well-tempered clavier book one, and it's in D, D major. <laughs> something like that. So I just want to talk about that for a second. This is fine, this is D major, but it doesn't take Bach long to wander off into A major. And now B minor F sharp minor. And then later on when he goes This is that pedal point I was telling you. Oh, sorry. about that thing down there. These are like the improvisations he would do on the organ. We don't know how much Bach used a keyboard to compose. He had several keyboards where he lived. He insisted that he was the only one capable of tuning them, and he tuned them every day. But we don't know if he mostly wrote away from the keyboard and then just went to the keyboard to fix things and see if they worked out or, or not. Anyway, after that uh, prelude, he writes a fugue, which is um, French overture style. Bach heard enough music throughout these various German cities so that he was aware, not only of German music, but of the contemporary French style. He knew the music of Lully and Couperin and Rameau, uh, of Italian music. He knew Frescobaldi and he knew Vivaldi. Um, even though he only traveled once the slightest distance out of Germany, he was aware internationally of these. So here's the French overture. fugue. So, the da-da, da-da is the style of the French court. It was a very grand style. Bach, as I said, wrote these six French suites. And what's magnificent about the French suites is that while the partitas, or the German suites, have harmonic complexity at their core, the French suites have dance at their core. Uh, movements that are all named after dance, the the, the gavotte, the passe the allemande, the courante, uh, the jig. Or, um. So Bach was capable of real lightness, and he loved this. What was terrific is that he was able to carry the dance-like qualities into many of the choral works so that things which could be heavy going always have a certain uh, lightness and a lift about them. Then uh, tragedy struck because Bach went the one time he left Germany to the far, uh, just across the border, the far western part of Bohemia, Czech Republic. He was gone for several months with the prince, came back, and Maria Barbara, who had been perfectly happy and healthy when he left, uh, was already buried in her grave. So they had had uh, seven children together, of whom four survived, and uh, Bach was left with these four children and did his best. However, the next year, uh, he met a woman who was a professional singer in the court um, named Anna Magdalena, and he married... Anna Magdalena. They remained together for the remaining 29 years of Bach's life, and she bore him another 13 children, (laughs) uh, of whom six survived to adulthood. Um, Of the 10 children uh, that survived, of the 20 total children, the 10 that survived, four of them became professional composers, so Bach carried on that tradition, or his sons carried on that tradition. When I say that uh, Anna Magdalena was a professional singer, women were not allowed to sing in the church. So boys, that's why Bach went to that choir school in, in Luneberg in the first place, because they needed boys with good, unchanged voices. However, women were welcome to sing professionally for the court, for weddings, for funerals, uh, for all kinds of everything else, as long as it wasn't in the church. So we're not gonna have a discussion about that. But that's just the way it was. And um, Anna Magdalena was a very sought after singer. so. Um, Bach brought to his composition the knowledge of keyboard. He was one of the great masters of the keyboard, and um, he also was a fine violinist. But now uh, he had somebody looking over his shoulder who would say, you know, occasionally singers have to breathe. And uh, he and Anna Magdalena had a real um, relationship that included musical give and take. So there was um, advice... I think she should have told him the singers needed to breathe more often, but um, <laughs> somehow, you know, uh, generation after generation, people have managed to sing this uh, fiendishly difficult choral music of, of Bach. And um, it's so rewarding. I think that um, one of the great tunes that I told you, that, uh, Martin Luther said. So, Bach. Um, takes the idea that Jesus is the calming, soothing presence, the the bridegroom, and that uh, we're all waiting and we have to be ready when that bridegroom appears. So the music that he writes is so um, almost sensual. It's it's a, a music that invites you. Again, when was the congregation supposed to come in? Bach had this all in his mind. It was not so clear to uh, the men and boys in the choir uh, what they were to do. But through uh, this period, Bach was able to create, not a few, but somewhere between 240 and 300 uh, church cantatas. So um, every cantata is associated with a different part of the liturgy, and, uh, the, for example, that is for the Sunday, the last Sunday before Advent. But a whole, a whole cycle uh, of 50 of these, and, and Bach completed four cycles. Um, when I say they're somewhere between 240 and 300, we have about 200 of Bach's cantatas now. We don't know how many were lost. Were used for meatpacking, were burned, were just put away somewhere. Um, every once in a while, people find manuscripts that are um, you know, extraordinary treasures because they're um, Bach's or Schubert's or Debussy's original something that had just gone missing. But uh, we think there's probably anywhere between 40 and 100 missing Bach cantatas, and we're just glad we got the ones that we got. Um, we'll take a break, and after break, Bach will be in his final city, which is Leipzig, okay? Let's take 15 minutes. <laughs> The intermission is where I get all the good questions. So um, I'm going to answer a couple of them. One is, does Bach have any living descendants now? No. Um, uh, But I wasn't sure about that, so I checked on my phone, and it's true. (laughs) None of them have called to thank us. Uh, So uh, the last Bach descendant died out in the mid-19th century. And and the other wonderful thing that somebody talked about was how Bach often sounds like, uh, can sound like mechanical music, and that that's not... Appealing to us because with our ears that have now heard all the romantic music that's been written uh, Does Bach somehow not have the melodic appeal? Um, So there are two things that work here one is that of course Bach's primary instruments were the organ uh, which could be very loud, but is is on a single dynamic plane and the only way to make it louder or softer is to pull the stops push and pull the stops um, you can have different registers set on different settings. You, know, you have more than one keyboard. Likewise, a harpsichord can have more than one keyboard, and the different keyboards can have different settings. But on a single keyboard of a harpsichord, yeah. you cannot do what a piano can do, which is get louder and softer. So um, uh, <laughs> Bach did write for orchestras and he did write for singers and he did write for violin and cello and so. Um, Even the music, though, for um, instruments and instrumental combinations that can have dynamic shapes are sometimes treated as if they were being played on a harpsichord. I don't think that that was Bach's intention. Uh, In the two-part inventions and three-part inventions, well actually he called the two-part one, this is keyboard, two-part ones were inventions and the three-part ones were called sinfonias. And he wrote in the beginning, once again, as he did with the Preludes and Fugues, this is for the edification of anybody desiring to learn music, and especially young people. And he said, and it is hoped by the composer that these pieces will help you develop a cantabile style. Cantabile means singing. How do you develop a cantabile style on a harpsichord? Um, Which Thomas Beecham famously said, sounds like skeletons fornicating in a closet. (laughs) So the fact is, Bach was able to do this through articulation and, and silence, and he, even on a harpsichord, could make the thing sound like it had breath. Now, Bach played a piano late in his life and disliked it very much, but it was one of the first pianos that Silbermann had ever built. Silbermann, the organist, organ builder, who had used Bach uh, to help him build organs earlier in his career, Um, used Bach once again. Bach had visited the court of Frederick the Great, and um, Frederick the Great didn't know he was coming, but as soon as he realized Bach was there, he said, I understand that you are able to improvise with no preparation, uh, fugues, three-part fugues, on any theme, and Bach humbly says, yes, (laughs) yes, your majesty, I can do that, and and, and Frederick the Great says, okay, here's a theme I wrote. (laughs) not a short or easy one. And Bach sits down and plays a three-part fugue on this. So Frederick the Great, who is still the royalty in the room, says, well then, do a six-part fugue. And Bach said, I will get that to your majesty after some consideration. So there's a work called The Musical Offering And the musical offering is the offering to Frederick the Great, which includes canons and fugues. Um, You know what a canon is, right? Like Frère Jacques, where instead of singing the second subject a fifth away, you're staying in the same key. So uh, he does all this, and it includes a six-part fugue on Frederick's theme. So Bach showed him that he could write a great six-part fugue. Now, Frederick the Great was a clever fellow himself. And this particular uh, piece was called a ricercare, Italian for to search for. And Bach wrote uh, in the dedication words so that the first letter of every word spelled out ricercare. And uh, Frederick, of course, thought this was uh, a fitting tribute to the greatest monarch that lived, which is how Frederick thought of himself. So, uh, Bach loved puzzles and games and numbers, and like I say, you know, the, the sets of six. But it is also true that because you can find almost anything you want in numbers, people have gone to great lengths to prove things which are probably not there. Uh, there's no question that Bach sometimes hid uh, something in, in, in the numbers in a piece. Um, there are six. English Suites. Now this isn't numbers, but the six English Suites were written 1715 or so, and if you take the keys of the six English Suites they are A, A, G, F, E, and D. And guess what? Bach put his favorite chorale tune in the key signature of the six English suites, so that anybody who was paying attention would know that really this set of six suites, an hour and 40 minutes of music, was a tribute to Jesus by way of the six notes of the chorale that you all sang so beautifully an hour ago. So, Bach did love stuff like this. I even brought a visual for you. This was designed by Bach. It was his personal coat of arms. Um, You can pass it around, and if anybody can figure out why that's Bach's coat of arms, just tell me. Um, I'll talk about something else for a few minutes. Oh, my goodness. Well, that was fast. Okay, Keith, you, you get to get up and sing something from the St. Matthew Passion now. <laughs> okay, so if you can see this smaller version... Let me hold this up. Smaller version of the same thing. These are the initials JSB. That's a mirror image of the same thing. That's what it looks like when you put them on top of each other. And that was the crest he designed for himself. So this was something he enjoyed um, but, but creating music was not a crossword puzzle to him. There was, there was much more, and although uh, he enjoyed canons that were one tune when they were played one way and then the other tune when they was held upside down, that, that's not what makes him a great composer, okay? That's just a sidebar. Um, so Bach's final 27 years were spent in Leipzig, and there, he created the works that we consider some of his very greatest works. Um, For example, the series of liturgical cantatas required something special for Good Friday, and so he wrote the St. Matthew Passion. Now, the St. Matthew Passion required much more than the 18 instrumentalists in the church and the small choir, so he enlisted every church in Leipzig, and all of the choirs, all of the orchestra players. This was conceived for two orchestras in the two different lofts of the Thomaskirche and two separate orchestras. So uh, the St. Matthew Passion, which is over two and a half hours long, uh, must have been the most extraordinary and the most dramatic piece that anybody had heard at this point in history. Uh, There are eyewitness accounts of people who happened to go to the Thomaskirche on um, Good Friday of 1727, because it was Good Friday, and and they said, I just went to fulfill my obligation and I found that I was in heaven for three hours. (laughs) So um, even in the St. Matthew Passion, the spirit of the French suite when I said that uh, Bach was able to take the most serious subject and yet there was a lightness uh, that he could include light and dark in the same piece. Um, One of the most tragic and serious pieces in the Matthew Passion still has this. Once again, we're struck that Bach isn't writing these uh, mechanical pieces. You know, that had its place in in his work too, but uh, he could create melodies as as great as anybody. Um, There's an orchestral suite, I bet you know this. A walking bass like jazz. Oh, another great melody. Um, he wrote a set of keyboard variations for two manual harps chord called the Goldberg Variations. Yeah, feel free to sing along if you want. this piece, at a short version, is about 45 minutes long. I understand that when Rudolf Serkin gave his debut recital in Germany after a long standing ovation, he sat down and as an encore played the Goldberg Variations. <laughs> <laughs> so. But in any case, uh, Bach was capable of spinning out fantastic melodies when he when he felt like it. Um, so I prepared a piece for you. It's about 12 minutes long. Um, do whatever you need to do. So it's a three-movement piece that Bach wrote in 1735 when he was 50 years old. It's called the Italian Concerto or Concerto after Italian taste is what he really called it. The Italian taste is the fast, slow, fast formula for writing three movements. A first movement, uh, to use my son's famous formulation that shows how well you can write music, a second movement that shows how much you feel, and a third movement that shows how happy you are. It's all over. <laughs> so that was a formula that carried well into the classical era, and um, this is this is Bach's Italian concerto. Now it was written for two manual harpsichord, so it would have had soft and loud, but of course Bach couldn't crescendo or decrescendo. Um, in the 21st century, we're just going to take the piano for what it is, and crescendo and decrescendo. So if you're a real purist, I'm just warning you up front, this is a a pianistic interpretation of the Italian concerto. Bach, at the end of his life, really had no more connection with the Thomas Kirche. He went through the motions, but he wanted to put together his life's work in two final testaments. One of them, he collected sacred music he'd written from between 1714 and 1749, 35 years, and created a work many of you have heard called the B Minor Mass, Of course, in German, it's called the H minor mass because in German, B means B flat and H means B natural. And I'm telling you that for a specific reason, because the other work he created besides the B minor mass was called the art of fugue. And it's fugues and canons on a simple subject. but for Bach nothing is simple. So the final fugue has uh, not only four voices, but four different subjects. So there are 64 ways they can be fitted together. However, Bach died after he had only written and composed in the third subject. He was saving the theme of the whole art of fugue for the end. So the third subject, and this is where it's helpful to know that H in German is B natural and B flat is called B, is his own name. B, A, C, H. So of course he can make a fugue out of his own name. He can make a fugue out of any, you know. Other composers have not done that. You know, Rimsky-Korsakov never wrote a fugue on his own name. But Bach did. And he's going along, and he's worked in the second voice and the third voice, and suddenly he dies, and his pen stops writing. And you can see, you can go online and see the moment when he just stops writing. So other people have tried to figure out how to write uh, a fugue with four subjects and four voices um, using these themes and nobody can do it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big job, and only Bach could do it, and he may have finished it, but he didn't finish it here. So um, we have this unfinished work, and uh, it's, it's quite marvelous, because Bach um, was never tempted uh, during his lifetime, when he obviously knew that he had a last name that could be expressed in, in musical letters. Uh, he never succumbed to that temptation, and, and maybe he shouldn't have, maybe he would have had another few years if he hadn't done that, We put him too close. But um, I I think that that in Bach's mind, he was saying, I'm coming, here I am, signed, B-A-C-H, and off he went. So um, 65 years now. I told you, at the end of Bach's life, nobody knew much about his music. They did know about the well-tempered clavier. uh, But Bach left us a thousand pieces, literally a thousand pieces of music. And the well-tempered clavier is just a small part of that. Um, A Jewish teenager named Felix Mendelssohn, decided it was up to him to revive the St. Matthew Passion. And he thought it was hugely funny that uh, a a Jewish teenager was responsible for restoring to the Christian world this work, which is one of the supreme artworks of of Christianity and of music. So Mendelssohn had a grandmother. (laughs) This is not a joke, this is a real story. (laughs) Mendelssohn's grandmother was so devoted to him, and Mendelssohn was probably the greatest, more of a prodigy than Mozart even. I mean, just unbelievable. And uh, at at 14, um, his grandmother knew that he loved the Bach that he had been in touch with. So she decided she would hand copy the entire manuscript of the St. Matthew Passion, which is the only way she could get a hold of it. And I remember I told you this work is over two and a half hours long for double chorus, double orchestra. You can imagine how many staves there are on a single page. So Mrs. Grandma... Transcribes the entire thing, and it takes her several years. So, on Mendelssohn's 19th birthday, five years later, she presents it to him. And Mendelssohn puts together huge choirs and orchestras. And in 1829, uh, you know, 79 years after Bach is dead, the world hears the whole St. Matthew Passion for the first time. Suddenly, people want to know everything they can know about Bach. And uh, all of the works that have just been buried in libraries come to light. 1859, 30 years even later than that, 109 years after he died, was the first full performance of the B minor mass. So, the works that we know and have heard since we were kids and take for granted were completely obliterated for for 100 years. They they weren't around, nobody could hear them, they were sitting in libraries. And uh, once Mendelssohn let that cat out of the bag, everybody followed but we owe Mendelssohn a a huge debt of gratitude for uh, believing in, and not to mention his grandmother. So, (laughs) um, I I just think that's so marvelous, because I started out by saying, you know, sometimes people are born at the right time or the wrong time. And uh, Bach's style of contrapuntal writing really went more back to his uncles. Uh, And as I said, his children moved CPE Bach and um, uh, Bach. Wilhelm Friedemann Bach, they moved more toward what we think of as as the early classical, the Haydn style of music. Um, But Bach didn't decide to go along with a trend. Bach uh, was an example of somebody who, once their mind was focused on something, they stayed absolutely laser focused on it. I didn't mention that in the last part of his life, Bach was blind. This did not stop him from writing everything down. his, his wife helped him, one of his sons helped him, but basically he just kept going until that pen stopped in the middle of B, A, C, that's it. So um, he, he is one of the most inspiring uh, stories. It turns out that Bach, uh, nearby where Bach was born, about three weeks before um, another composer was born, about 100 miles away, named Handel. And uh, Bach and Handel never met, Bach tried to arrange it a couple times. It never worked out. The one thing they had in common was an eye surgeon. Um, They were both going blind in later life. And this guy, John Taylor, who was apparently a complete quack, um, did cataract operations on both of them, which which left them worse off than before they had them. So um, this John Taylor did a cataract in one of Bach's eyes, did the other one, and apparently Bach died from complications of the second cataract operation. So, um, you know, medicine, we have so much to be thankful for. <laughs> not, not just that Bach's music, thanks to Mendelssohn and his grandmother, is here with us. But uh, there, there are so many things about life that are, are so miraculous. And um, that we can share it through this music. And somehow that this man, across hundreds of years, was able to write music that speaks to us in this way. Uh, is also miraculous. so thank you for coming and, and sharing a little evening of Bach with me. Uh, I hope that next time you have the opportunity to listen to something, whether it 's live or recorded, you 'll just take the time because if, if you give Bach a little time, he will reward you. I, I promise you that. Thank you all so so much. <laughs>